Welcome to Robot Friends, the Internet's podcast of record. Episode 20, Eigenrobot vs. Santi. Hey all, I'm here with Santi. Santi, how you doing, man? I'm doing really well. It's great to talk. Yeah, you're probably in a better position than I am. I, I have slept little. I'm still... I fucked up my nicotine withdrawal. I started out like with with probably more than is recommended as your starting dose for tapering. And then I thought it felt fine. So I cut back really aggressively. And over the last couple of days, I realized it was too much and that was act- actually affecting me. So are you are you on patches at the patches? Moment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a very stupid thing. I started out. I've never I've never been addicted to cigarettes. I never had the concentration to do that. I, I like cigarettes and for a long time I would have a pack in the house, but I never really had cravings for cigarettes. And if I had more than one cigarette at a time, unless I was, you know, out drinking with friends, mm-hmm. I would usually just end up feeling sick. So what would happen is I would have this pack of cigarettes and they would just linger in the house for months and I would forget where I put them. And occasionally I would think, you know, it would be a nice time for a cigarette. Yep. But then I would have Many to think cases. where the cigarette. Yeah. Where are the cigarettes? Where's my lighter? And by the time it got to that, I was just like, you know, I'd move on to something else. So I never actually managed to finish a pack of cigarettes. And my my real problem came when I started chewing nicotine gum. And it turns out mm. that's easy to keep track of. That's really addictive. And it didn't make me sick in the same way. So this is a patch taper off of nicotine gum. It's a very, sounds like it should be very gentle, but it sounds like it's it's not for you so far. No, no, not at all. It's it's been <laughs> atrocious. So I've I mean I've tried to do this before, and you know I hit the nicotine withdrawal psychosis when I was still working, and now that I'm not doing that, it seems like a good time to try and cut it off. But you know, there's there's still a baseline level of functionality that I need to maintain, and I, I was not at that point over the last few days. So it's funny you mentioned that because I am currently in like the like the pre wedding uh, like starvation kick i'm just trying to like change everything about my body in the last like four months oh yeah and shout out to at gate analyst who very helpfully sent me a mountain of the zin pouches to try and like have something to do when i'm not eating the little like z it's like um it's like a dip if it wasn't tobacco it's just like very corporate like little packages of nicotine directly into the into you know between your your gum and and your lip um they're, they feel very corporate. It's like the vape of uh, <laughs> of, of dip. Um, I've never dipped for for context. Premium mediocre they, dip. It really is. It's like the it's like the live in a pod version. Um, but they're they're marvelously addicting. I may be like a few years behind you on this treadmill. Yeah. Well, Habitrol patches on Amazon. You know, they're pretty reasonably cheap. They're actually cheaper than the gum, at least at the rate that I was consuming it. So. Word. <laughs> oh man don't do drugs well be careful about how you do drugs kids <laughs> um so yeah so santi uh I've, I've known santi for a couple of years um more or less casually and one and and he's great and i've wanted to talk with him for a while and it's just serendipitously become a become a more salient talk than i'd expected um, because Santi has recently become a reporter, which, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, it's, it, but I mean, like, I assume you haven't checked your, you know, moral and social status at the door. 
You would think. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So if you're talking with Santi, make sure that, that you, you know, state that everything is what on background, not even on background. You should, you should say off the record unless, yeah, it's, it's interesting because on background is like really abusable. Like, you know, when, you know, when, um, you would see all these stories during the Trump era that said they were like on background, like a source with knowledge of the president's thinking. And you just knew that that was the president. It, oh, on really? ba- it, there, 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 were, there were cases like that <laughs> where you, you'd have like, th- like, if you know what to look for, you, that's like, you know, actually who they're talking about, even though it's fun, it's theoretically, you know, he, it's on background. So we just said like a source with knowledge of the president's thinking with close knowledge of the president's thinking even. Yeah. And you'd be like, that, I know who that is. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, so off, off the record should always, yeah, just like opsec off the record should always be your default. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I didn't specify that before this conversation, so <laughs> FML. Yeah, it's interesting actually mentioning that at the start of this because it feels sort of like having a cop come on your podcast. I mean, not 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 with exactly the same moral equivalence, but just situationally and saying, so when should I talk to police officers and how should I speak to them? So I, I appreciate you being very open about it. Do, oh, do yeah. you feel like a... Do you feel like a traitor saying that? I mean, I don't. So, so I've been in this job a month now, um, and I'm at an outlet, the Free Beacon, which has a, a formally adversarial role to a lot of mainstream media that was founded. There's a whole kind of backstory, but it was founded kind of by um, ideological conservatives who wanted to cover stories the you know the New York Times didn't cover. So that was back in I want to say '08. Don't quote me. Um, yeah. But so, so in that sense, I don't feel any like tribal affiliation to my class, I guess. Maybe I yeah. should, maybe I should develop some more in-group loyalty because this is my in-group now to some uh. extent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, so far I'm loving the job, so I'm sure that's going to kind of affect, um, my, my emotional kind of valence towards this whole thing. But I don't, I don't exactly feel like a traitor because I've always thought journalists are scum and now I just happen to be one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I, I think I appreciate it. And I mean, I've, I mean, honestly, I've worked in roles that, are, that were functionally journalistic or at least in, in that general industrial space. And I sort of have the impression that you have without knowing that much about your job, you, you probably have more latitude to operate than, than I did in that role. I mean, it, I, I was functionally a PR flack, like mm-hmm. more technical and hypothetically there, there was something backing up what I was saying, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was a PR flack and I, I actually found that completely soul killing. And I'm glad that I don't do that anymore. I, it was one of the motivations for looking for work, like what I do now, where everything that I do is for internal consumption and, People, people really care about me getting the right answer because, you know, if I'm wrong, then, then huge amounts of money are on the line versus. Right. So, yeah. Nah. Yeah. I, I like doing outward facing stuff, I guess. Um, and I also do, I have a lot of latitude. My, my, ed- the editors at the beacon have been fantastic so far. It's been a real, um, yeah, I, I was the- theoretically brought on to cover like big tech in the Biden era. But like I'm working on a piece about mammoth cloning right now that they were like, hell yeah, like oh, send it on. Oh, thank over. God. I'm so, so glad to hear that. 
yeah so there's a there's a there it's been a tremendous environment so far and like as long as i'm fulfilling kind of basic weekly requirements to cover a very interesting you know suite of stories about um more topical things if there's like a like a megafauna offshoot or like you know what what's happening to the american chestnut like that stuff's all fair game too which is really exciting yeah oh oh the chestnut i'd forgotten about that so <laughs> So that, I mean, that's interesting. The, you mentioned that the free beacon was sort of set up with an adversarial, sort of for, in, a, in an explicitly adversarial position to a lot of mainstream journalism. So what, can you explain that a bit more and, and sort of what their critique is and how they're, they're sort of executing against it? Yeah. Um, I think the critique is really familiar to folks in our Twitter circles. It's kind of a, it's been around for kind of for longer than, you know, than we have. I think there's a, a family member has a guitar case with a Bush 2004 bumper sticker on it. that says, annoy the media, reelect Bush. Um, yeah. you know, like I, you know, I'm, you know, which is, you know, beyond my generation, but I think some of these concerns, you know, there's certain kinds of institutional bias baked in certain kinds of stories just won't get touched, yada, yada, yada. Um, things that I think are all true. In, in the in the abstract and often in the particulars. So I actually used to work for, among other folks at AEI, Matt Continetti, who was the uh, original founder and editor-in-chief of the Free Beacon. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of kind of like, it's got these roots in intellectual conservatism in DC. Um, I couldn't give you the full history. And the Beacon also focuses on some other things. It's kind of like a uh, more hawkish on national security, I would say, and you know, interested in investigating Dems would be the like. That's the corner of the ecosystem it operates in. But that mm. being said, there's a lot of latitude within that to to run down specific things. Do you? I mean, the way that you describe it, would you say that that? I mean, a pitch that I could make, and I definitely don't have enough inside knowledge to make any, any kind of strong claim about this, but I could see somebody making the case that what the free beacon is doing is kind of a, an explicit, explicit version, but you know, with, with a different outgroup than lots of mainstream publications do on the regular. Yeah. And I think you could make that it's a, it's a real critique. And it's one that I think you could lobby against a lot of the conservative media ecosystem as it's kind of existed for a long time. Um, the sense that, oh, the mainstream media ha- has a particular narrative, a particular set of institutional biases, a particular set of blind spots. What we can do is try to build often, well, you saw some stuff like the Beacon, which I think was more explicitly investigative we wanted to break stories i say we i mean the institution has wanted to kind of break news but what you saw often i think on the right for the last like i don't know how long probably longer than whatever number i was going to say but a media ecosystem that was built around taking existing investigative stuff from the times or from the washington post and poking holes in all the ways in which it it is slanted or angled or how you wouldn't run this headline so i think there is a real critique that you need more than just a a parallel structure that either mimics and mirrors the issues on the on you know a center left mainstream media um or just points out holes i think i think those are fair critiques 
Yeah. Would, would you say that it's been effective? And, and like, maybe if so, how, because I, one, one thing that I could see at least is maybe that this would play well with say, like, say, I don't know, Republicans or partisan rightish people, but wouldn't actually have much of an effect outside of that. It's, I don't think I'm completely qualified to answer, but I would say it's definitely been effective in um, riling up the base. There's yeah. a, there's a, yeah, that part is definitely true. There's a, there's a world and, you know, often I'm in that camp of people who I, I can't avoid reading a, what did the New York times screw up this time? Like that's, that's yeah. red meat for me, right? Like it works. It hits me at a like lizard brain level and I'm like, I will not stop consuming that stuff and shaping my opinions of the New York times based on that. That is definitely true. Um, I think generally it's probably been a driver of the more, the, the less ideological distrust of media you've got in like our corners these days where folks who are not in any meaningful way on the right now think I can't trust New York times reporter to do right by me or my subculture. Like I, I would say a lot of that, I think that dynamic started earlier in more partisan ways and is now leaching into the rest of our, our corners. Um, but I do think, yeah, there's a lack of serious investigative work often coming from the right. And I don't know if, yeah, if, if the way a lot of these kind of right-leaning institutions were set up that were explicitly like, yeah, we are biased, but in the other direction, I don't think they were built to solve that problem. And so you're kind of left with a world in which, unless it's like a small outlet like us, like the beacon, um, you don't have a suite of folks breaking news that that isn't kind of from a particular New York Timesy angle. I think that yeah. is a problem. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I don't necessarily even, I mean, from my perspective, it's not from my perspective as somebody who I, I would like to think is at least either some, somewhere between disinterested or like, so, I don't know. Mutually hostile is not quite the right word, <laughs> but, but I mean, like, I, I feel like I have an interest, but I'm not necessarily interested in, you know, some particular like angle winning out over another. Right. Um, I, I mean like my, my preferences over policy are all really niche and, and beyond that, I just really can't muster the will to care anymore. Um, <laughs> too old, but, but so like, I, I think the the investigative angle is pretty interesting to me because I, it does seem like there have been stories in the past that have just absolutely not been picked up at all by what you would think of as like maximally reputable center left sources. And I I'm here, I'm sort of thinking about Hunter Biden. I'm sort of thinking about how the John Edwards where mm-hmm. John Edwards was, you know, having an affair with someone or another, um, some, maybe another journalist, something like that anyway. And, and like, you know, he, they, they ended up having a love child and I think the national Enquirer broke this. Mm-hmm. Didn't he correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't he afterwards divorce his wife while she was dying of cancer? Was that the same story? Newt um, did that. Newt Gingrich I, did that. Plenty of people do that. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it, it seems like something that might've happened, but so many people have done yeah. that. that it's really hard to, there's a lot of, a lot of bad people you could, you could just describe without naming <laughs> maybe mccain i think mccain did that mccain maybe also did that yeah i know newt's on on his fourth wife um <sighs> i wish they wouldn't <laughs> man so 
Yeah. All right. I, I feel like that's kind of an interesting framing. So I don't know. I mean, the, the big thing in the news over the last week or the last, I don't know, maybe even over the last year for Grey Tribe subculture has been the New York Times reporting on Scott. Yeah. And I guess I have two things that I'm thinking about with respect to that. And the first one is just how, I, I guess I'm curious how you think people have been responding to that as somebody who's a professional in media and like what we're doing well and what we're just completely fucking up. And I guess more broadly than that, I don't know. I mean, what, what sort of a role places like free beacon, like, like you're coming at this from kind of a right media angle. Do you, do you see right media as having some kind of a role to play in counterbalancing this or does it, I mean, does it make more sense for everyone in gray tribe to just try and keep their heads down and stay unaffiliated? Even if, you know, from a right angle, like maybe it's, maybe it's easy to publish a story that's like, Oh, you know, the New York times is, you know, doing all these bad right. things. But then if, if people were to go and, and start affiliating with some other somewhat partisan institution that, that is sympathetic as a consequence of just the specific mm-hmm. circumstances, like it seems like that could be a trap too. Yeah. Um, we, I, I, and, and the beacon kind of got pulled into the, the New York times story, I think more than anybody wanted after, I don't know if you saw this, but, uh, one of the more famous New York Times journalists stalked one of my colleagues and tweeted out his personal phone number. I when saw he, that. Yeah. Good. Like, what the hell? Right. I, I, I was shocked. It, it, it is a, it is a pretty kind of garish and obvious flouting of you know. This is the interesting thing I think for me is, um, the 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 new, the stuff that's going to work, whatever's going to come out of this, you know people losing faith in New York times, you know, it, it's still obviously going to be very successful as a, as a, as a, you know, as a business model, I think, but to the extent that you can put up other good, you know, journalism that you can trust at face value, it's going to be because you follow basic principles. Like, you, you know, you don't dox people who don't, who ask not to be doxed unless there's an obvious public interest, you wait for comment, all this kind of basic stuff that I think you know, people would recognize like the New York times is massively successful because for a long time, you just assume this is how they, this, they play by these, you know, boring bog standard industry rules. Yeah. Um, if they're not going to do those things, I, I think you need somebody to do those things. I'm very much like an old, an old fart on this. I think you need on not, not because they're on principle, good rules necessarily, be, you know, I think they are, but more because procedurally they protect you and they protect the reader from getting screwed over every so often. Like yeah. you ask for comment and then lo and behold, they give you a comment and you were misreading something really obvious. I was doing that uh, recently on a story and thank God there are like rules that young journalists like me have to follow, like wait for comment if you can and, you know, double check your sources because sometimes your sources are super partisan and they have a certain line they want, you know, to run in a major paper so they can, you know, wave it all over the hill. Um, like all those things are just good. They're, they're, they're protective, you know, it's good to yeah. have these rules in place for, for me as much as for anybody else. So if you're at the times and like your, your internal tribe is ascendant at the times and you feel like you don't have to follow those rules, it's good for you. 
individually to like be able to flex and you know own your enemies online um i think it is like bad for institutional credibility obviously yeah is and i don't want to press you too much about that specific case or i i don't remember the names yeah. of the journalist the free beacon i don't know if you want me to say the name of the reporter at new york times reporter that seems like a stretch but yeah it doesn't really matter it was aaron sabarium is my is my colleague um yeah the 1619 project lady was the was the yeah Nicole antagonist here yeah that's her name. yeah i mean that was i i was just I, I was really genuinely shocked that she would do that and i don't know maybe that she just had enough clout at new york times to be able to do that and and just nothing you know mm-hmm. is i mean is that is that this i i just have to imagine that you know somebody upstream would try to rein that in but i mean maybe just like dean baquette doesn't feel like he has the ability to do that at this point lm do you know lm sakasis michael sakasis he's like an internet theorist he's been he's fantastic he's a dc guy but he has he used the term information superabundance which i Mm -hmm. thought was really helpful to describe the kind of driver of a lot of media dynamics so like Uh. by this by the same token like the, the same thing that's happening where suddenly i don't need the new york times because i've got twitter and four million people telling me about stuff that's going on that that same phenomenon that lets me like you know tune out and tune into my ecosystem which i think serves me better um i think that like right i mean i'm not the first person to or the last person to point this out but those dynamics also push the times more towards serving a specific subscriber base and serving that specific base means more latitude for folks like nicole hannah jones to be trolls online because that's actually fine for the people who now want to read the New York times. You have to milk your, your subsection of the public more because you're losing some broader swath of, you know, yeah. General readership. And I think that dynamic is not going to go away, which is a little bit depressing for if you, if you think um, that you want like a truly objective, you know, view from nowhere journalism. I don't know if that's possible, but it, if it, if it ever existed, but it's definitely not possible anymore. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was chatting with somebody else about this and it seems like there, I mean, I know people have been mad at media for a long time. And so some of the earlier cases that I know of just as cultural relics are, I mean, Tom Wolf, I, bless Tom Wolf. I wish he were still here as he existed in like the sixties or seventies, but I mean, the, the journalist that he wrote into bonfire, the vanities, or, um, I mean, Don Henley wrote a song called Dirty Laundry in the 80s that was fairly popular, that was just just <laughs> absolutely ragging on journalists and more or less calling them ambulance chasers. And I don't know, I mean, even through the 90s and, and, and aughts, like, it's not like the Times came away from things with their hands clean, you know? I mean, Judith Miller mm-hmm. was basically feeding a CIA line and and reporting it as, as, as gospel. And I mean, like, she she must've gotten in some trouble, but I don't know if the times ever really took a reputational hit. And then I'm thinking about, you know, in the Obama era and especially since, you know, since what the happening, since let's, let's blame it on Gamergate. I mean, just, just going back and look <laughs> at like, Gamergate. I know causing everything. Um, but, but I mean, like there was the big vanity fair thing on the Virginia university of Virginia fraternity that was accused of, yeah 
like some kind of a horrific gang rape that was like Rolling, fa- Rolling Stone, I think. Rolling Stone, yeah, not yeah. Vanity Fair. Apologies to Vanity Fair mm-hmm. um, <laughs> for this. Or I mean, like that that thing with the uh, the kid from Covington that was just you know completely blown out of proportion. And I guess he was able to sue. Yeah, I think the system kind of worked in that case. Yeah, um, not not for the. I mean, eventually for the kid that he wound up widely hated by some section of the population and massively wealthy. I don't know if that's a trade-off I would want. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But I mean, like, do you, do you think there was some kind of a reputational hit? Cause I, I guess that's what I would ultimately hope for. Like somebody publishes something that that's just wrong or misleading and people respond by no longer trusting that, that source of that institution. I do think so, but I will caveat by saying I think Galman Amnesia is really real. I think yeah. I I still will and and to be clear, like I read plenty of stuff from the New York Times that I like, you know, which puts me in a spot of trouble because yeah. I'm fully I'm fully aware of these problems and I I consume a lot of their you know a lot of their video media. They had a great um, video timeline of the Beirut explosion from last summer, mm. a couple summers ago that, you know, was oh, I saw that. Yeah. right. It was, it was, it was a good piece of work, right? Um, they took, they picked up a lot of really good digital content folks in the past couple of years. Um, so I think it does cost credibility. I don't think it's necessarily in a way that changes their institutional effectiveness. If you're, if you want to wave something around on Capitol Hill, um, I don't think it affects their bottom line. I think, I mean, everybody can kind of look at the numbers and see the times is doing great. Um, yeah. I, I think those things are a little bit divorced from each other. Like it makes yeah. me trust them less and it doesn't do much else out in the world. I mean, like you should change your sources of news accordingly, but I don't think institutional credibility, I, I'm a pessimist here. I think the New York times will continue to succeed at what it sees as its function. Yeah. Okay. This, this all feels pretty black pilled. I mean, do you, is, do you, do you see any kind of hope for some kind of a, a better media? I do. I mean, I think I mean, just, just to take pure anecdata, my news consumption, I, and I think a lot of folks who are in kind of great tribe corners notice this on COVID. Um, the people I was listening to were right two months ahead of other people, you know, in some cases longer. Um, that was a, a good sign to me that whether or not it's available for everybody, whether or not it takes way too much time on Twitter to become this way, like you can actually ingest, you, you can actually get a better view of the world on a lot of axes. I can in a better way than I could five years ago. Yeah. Like that, that, that's just, this is factually true. I feel like I have a better handle on things quicker than I did. So in that sense, I'm really optimistic. Like, it's just that the institutions that I wish you could trust, I wish there was something I could point to and say, mom, like, check this out in the New York Times in January about COVID. Like, it, there's just, you know, there's a generational gap, there's a partisan gap, like, I'm not going to be able to use the same resource to necessarily move, you know, p- opinion in my in my inner circles necessarily. We may have splintered, yeah, I mean, we, we have a splintered uh, consumption pattern. Yeah, but okay, I'm, not, I'm not terribly downer on like, can I still find out what's going on in a given case? I, which I know some people are like, I can never tell what's true anymore. I don't think that's true. I think you can better than in, in most previous, maybe all previous eras. I, you can get to the bottom of something as far as there's publicly available knowledge 
with a pretty, I feel good about that part. Yeah. Okay. That that's actually a pretty helpful framing for me and leaves me, I mean, at least less concerned with the existing players or sets of institutions that seem like they're pretty problematic and more concerned with, all right, what is the actual thing that I'm trying to accomplish with news media, which is perhaps find things out. Although I think maybe, maybe that doesn't actually allay completely a secondary concern or, or a secondary function of news media, which is just creating some kind of a coherent narrative which seems yeah. important for a society, you know, it, and I, I don't necessarily love that. And it, to an extent, there's, there's a way in which a narrative actually really, really tends to obscure the truth. You know, if, if, if you buy into a narrative and you see things that contradict it, then, then you just stop seeing those things or you go out of your way to make those things false. And I mean, I guess I don't know that the narrative that legacy news media have, have created over the past century was actually, even a particularly good narrative, but maybe just having everybody buy into it prevented them from wanting to kill each other and stop talking to their families. Yeah. I think maybe, maybe this makes me really nitpicky and annoying, but I think you can say, that's good though. We like <laughs> that. That's the default state. Um, I think you can say like there were really good benefits, like side benefits that came out of having a monoculture in media in like the seventies or whatever. Um, I think you can think that, sure, that like you got people to get along and basically agree on a wide variety of kind of civic issues, um, and yet that media should not be in the business of trying to make those things happen. Like there were ancillary effects that were great and for social cohesion, yada, 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 um, but that, especially today, but I think even then, your job was should not be to create the narrative. Um yeah, I so I don't know how to how to parse like the how to parse those two kind of moral questions, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely good on some axes, but it was probably bad that <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> we're we're, tr- we're, tr- we're trying to make that happen. Um, I will the, the last thing I'll say on on just the kind of specific New York Times topic is that a lot of the I mean, plenty of folks are aware of this, but a lot of the underlying dynamic between the like you know, Slate Star Codex hit pieces or the Taylor, Taylor Lawrence clubhouse pieces. A big driver of that is just the New York times sees, um, big VCs like a 16 Z as direct competitors because they are, um, a 16 Z wants to take a big bite out of, um, you know, legacy media's attention share clubhouse is a, you know, a good example of that. Like if you were a cynic and you were working at the New York times, you would want, Taylor Lorenz to talk about how dangerous clubhouse is for spreading misinformation and extremism that they are in direct competition. And so I don't think, I don't, maybe that makes me cynical, but I don't think it's a sign that like, Oh no, you know, our institutions are failing us. It's more that like, this is what you would expect a big institution like New York times to do in any context. They're scared like they're trying to protect their ass. That, that all makes sense to me. It doesn't make me think, Oh no, like, in you know the truth is dead yeah yeah that's legit i mean i think i resent i mean i as as someone who used to identify as an economist i mean it, it kind of feels like rent seeking frankly and man i just and that you know that's the worst thing an economist can call somebody as a rent seeker <laughs> so 
I'm an economist. <laughs> yeah. You know, take, take that with its full weight. Um, so I guess the other part of that, that large set of amorphous questions that I had was what do you think great, how do you think great tribe is doing in this somewhat hostile environment and what actually, why, why do you think they targeted Scott in particular? Do you think it, do you think it was something that was political or do you think he just got lumped in with this set of people who, who are competing with New York times either, you know, as, as some sort of affiliate of VCs or just as somebody who is, I mean, you know, kind of crafting at least a critique of existing narratives. Right. I don't want to speculate too much about motive just because I, I don't actually have a good handle on what's driving it, but I will say, um, if you spot something like, you know, Scott Alexander's blog, and it is an interesting story just on its face. Like, why does everybody read this dude's blog? Like, that's that's a story. Um, I think if you're a certain kind of reporter, and this is a danger, I think, as I'm learning for everybody, there are some very kind of easy frames to fall into, whatever your, whatever your outlet is, right? Like, if you're a New York Times reporter, the X or Y is spreading disinformation story, you can write that uh, in your sleep. It's really yeah. easy to do. Um, your editor is used to that. Like I, you can see all these kinds of institutional pressures that even if you're a, like, I just want to tell this cool story about this wacky blog. Um, if you're not trying really hard to understand something genuinely, you're going to end up phoning in, you know, or even working very hard and unconsciously ending up with the sort of thing you write a lot. Um, so I think there's some, you know, maybe just like a lack of curiosity. Uh, you know, there are all these all these things that end up looking like really bad malicious biases. Um, you know, we're out to screw this guy and make him close his blog and change his job and you know get death threats. Um, it's awful outcomes that I think because journalists are really powerful and because you're on a deadline and have all these institutional incentives, you can just start writing a story and it'll end up being disinformation is you know lurking in the comment section here and this person is related to this person there's all kinds of tricks that like you can just slip into yeah it's not hard to write that story you know like if you were given the job like be a new york times reporter write a hit piece on you know evil you know human biodiversity types on the west coast it's really easy to write it writes yeah itself. yeah yeah this Another thing that I'm what one thing that's just bubbled to the front of my mind is I guess I'm going to present you with somebody who seems to disagree with you and let you say whatever you like about that. Did did you read Will Wilkinson's piece that he put out today or see no. my blogging ads? Okay. No. All right. Um well feel free to take a swing if you want, but otherwise no pressure to comment on something you haven't read. Okay. I, uh, I I did not. I just saw it floating around on Twitter, but my sense is well. No, tell me what. Tell me what you're going to say. Well, I mean, like his. I I only read half of his piece before I realized it was far longer than anything I actually wanted to read, and also <laughs> he was just kind of reporting his talking points from from a video he recorded with Robert Wright, who who I I like and respect quite a lot, and his his take was something like there is nobody more interested in pursuing the truth or, or in generating an accurate epistemology than a New York times reporter. And I, 
I'm, I, I guess I was struggling a little bit, like how somebody would come up with that framing. And I, I mean, I guess there's an easy story you can tell, you know, like you work as a journalist, you like publish yourself in the New York times. Like it's very easy to start identifying with, with that group and come up with, with a narrative about how, you know, the group of people that you're working with are the noblest in the world. Oh yeah. But I, I don't know. Do you, is that maybe one thing that you, you could comment on with some knowledge? Would you say that most journalists see themselves that way? I don't know. I don't know. I, I've, I think probably, and you have to report from somewhere. I don't begrudge, you know, this is something that I can't remember who there was some fantastic, um, like media analyst or ombudsman who was, who was making this point about procedural kind of protections that everybody's coming into it with their takes. And I don't think that view from nowhere journalism exists, but I just, I really like the procedural and like reporter voice, like rules of the road that protect you and readers from those things. Like, I think those things do a lot more to get you to like good reporting than somebody in New York times suddenly trying really hard to divorce themselves from their like, kind of Biden-y tendencies. Yeah. Um, like, I if if you're a New York Times reporter and you, are, you kind of religiously follow the rules about, you know, what can you attribute to who and, like, let's not try to, like, cast things in a certain light if we're not sure about them, those things will, even if you're still biased and you're, you're, you're asking certain experts for comment and not others, whatever, like, you're still going to come out with a product that the actual text will say more true stuff than if you you didn't i don't know if that makes sense yeah i would rather people follow hardline procedures and i would not and i would just kind of read stuff knowing okay they kind of lean left or they kind of lean right it's when folks like you know Cade metz writing on scott alexander who both leans a very specific way and also butchers basic facts or write sentences to as so as to imply stuff that's obviously not true the, the the whoever was his editor and didn't check those things that pisses me off way more than him just like thinking that everybody in Silicon Valley is like a neo reactionary. Yeah, that's that's an interesting framing. Do you? I mean, I I don't know specifically what the complete set of rules or even even like an overview of what the rules that you're referring to are. I mean, did did he violate them? It seems like it seems like if you were to read that piece in a certain way. You could you could see it as like this legalistic thing where it's like I followed the letter of the law in this way, in this way, in this way. Even even if you're you know flagrantly violating the spirit of it, that's a that's a good point because there are cases where he does that, right? Where he says, well, where there's sentences that are like not even wrong exactly, but you come away with a very different impression than if you had read the source material. So that yeah. that's true. Like you can you can follow all of the like rules, but there were also cases where like he links to something maybe it was about the james damore thing i don't even remember but where the the actual link and this is increasingly common the thing he's linking to makes the opposite claim um, yeah which is just a, a basic violation of of how this stuff works because people don't click the link you put the link in there to show that you know what you're talking about right so that nobody has to read the thing um i mean as so somebody who's published an academic paper like i get it <laughs> What's the what's the what's the rule about what percentage of citations are just like nonsense? You just like Googled something and didn't read it. There's some Oh, it's 
ungodly I, percentage. <laughs> it's it's huge. I mean, like even even I I mean, you know, in academic papers in particular, like if you're writing in a specific field, there's just a set of papers that you cite. And the the entire like literature review section that you do at the beginning of a piece, it, it's there, there's been a bit of a change in this now. But you know, historically, you would just like have this literature review section where you're building up the context for your piece, and it's almost always boilerplate, where it's just like here here's the entire history of the field. Here are the papers that everyone cites. Maybe here are a few more papers that are like eh, you more, more more directly relevant, but at least maybe 10 or 15 years ago when I was writing this stuff in the particular lab I was working in, it was like, here you go. Going to go inside Modigliani or whoever the hell it was. <laughs> I worked in a, I worked in a psych lab for a summer. Um, and there were similar dynamics at play where it's like, we're building up this whole field of inquiry about, you know, it was wisdom research, um, uh-huh. this, uh, practical wisdom and everybody's citing each other. And, many of the papers have an N of like 35 and it's like all self-report qualitative data. And Oh boy. It it really gives off the impression if you're not looking closely that this is like a well-founded, you know, decades long direction of research when it's like one person outlining what I would like this field to look like and five people doing their best with, you know, college students to fill it in. It's not, there's a lot of tricks like this, not just in the journalistic world, like the, the like status producing games exist everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a psychometrics household. I, there you go. Okay. I'm, I'm super familiar with these complaints. <laughs> then, then I really don't want you to look at the stuff I worked on. This last. I no same. No, I, <laughs> I, I'm proud of one of my papers and most of the others were either sort of trivial or, you know, they were published in a good journal and I was embarrassed about that because I didn't think much of it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I going back again, what, how, how do you think gray tribe people should be operating in, in the current information environment? Like what are standard safety things that like individuals can do? Is there any kind of strategy that seems like it would be sane or productive to adopt? Yeah, I will say, I, I, I think I can speak to it on the individual level on the like macro level, there's all sorts of people you've got like on the one hand, like Balaji saying like, never talk to reporters ever. We have to see, you know, exit rather than voice. And then you've got folks on the other end, like, um, like a 16 Z saying, we're going to start a new outlet to talk about cool innovation and technology. I don't have an opinion on that stuff. That's above my pay grade. Yeah. Um, I don't. And I also, I don't, I'm not affiliated with any of these people and they want me to be involved in their, in their stupid culture wars. And I don't, you know, yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not a participant. Um, I will say for individuals, you sh- you certainly should be very careful when you talk to media, especially media you think may be out to get you, and even media like me, who you may not think is out to get you, because people are on deadline and they got to write something. And if they get it wrong, but in a not obvious way, or if you get screwed in a not obvious way, they're onto the next story by the time you find out about it. There are just personal, yeah. You 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 yourself, like as a, just an average person, should be careful. I. Beyond that, I don't, a lot of people talk about this as though they have a, as though them picking the right news sources or, you know, defeating the wrong ones will change like facts on the ground or that you, you doing it is a victory, you know, in the field of public policy. Um, 
it's I, I just think on a personal level you should want to take in things that are true and try to avoid believing things that are incorrect which you know great tribe great tribe feels much more strongly than almost anybody else i think so yeah we're, we're, we're good there um but yeah i would just be whenever i mean learning to read scientific papers at the root and learning to pick them apart is the most useful skill i think and one that i'm still working on developing um just because everybody bs's and the quicker you can get to the root to the thing that's you know like up the chain cited in the bs that is bs the the more comfortable you're going to feel um that i think just like being able to look at primary sources is like a blessing that like we all have to a much greater extent than anybody else has had yeah and, like parsing that stuff feels like the the quickest hack to just like is this bs or not I'm just going to go look at the paper and see if it's BS or not. You know, like yeah, that. yeah. I don't know that there's a, a quicker, easier way to like. You know, I can't give you a list of trustworthy sources or not. Like you, I don't know. I don't know yeah. if there's any so in individual level solutions beyond like try to notice when things things are BS and adjust accordingly. Yeah. Oh man. So yeah, I I feel like maybe maybe I've flagged this enough, and I I should possibly think less <laughs> about journalism, even though even though here I am talking to talking to a real life journalist. Um, but, okay. But, but you're also in DC. And I mean, one thing that we alluded to, I guess, is that most, most of the people who listen to this for sure are not going to be people who live in DC. And I, I guess there, there are a lot of cultural gaps between, I think how we interact with the world on a regular basis and maybe what it's like living in DC. And I mean, specifically, you know, you, so you worked at AEI for a while, which is a think tank. Um, do you, did you end up coming away from that or from just writing DC social circles that left you with a sense when you go and read stuff that, you know, people in Silicon Valley, write, where you just come away with the idea that they, they have some major misconceptions about how things operate. I think so. And I also think those same misconceptions are really popular in DC too. So, okay. like, so like, like, like I, I don't think, I don't think like it's just West coasters who are missing something obvious. I think it's really easy for, for instance, for to think that the cabal of people who are opposed to the thing you want communicate with each other on a consistent basis and plan to thwart those things. I think yeah. in, institutional kludge is the biggest driver or non-driver, however you want to put it, of things that happen in DC. Um, yeah. Just like all these things are massive institutions that take forever to come up with a decision and they're legally held to a much higher level than West Coasters, you know, in, institutions are. Um, things don't work. And when they work, they work really slowly. Like that is the explanation for like 90% of that see, see at least from, from from my limited experience, that seems like the, the explanation for almost everything. Things are just huh. really hard hard to move, and the people you think are like plotting against you are, are having a much harder time plotting than than the, kind of the impression from the outside. Yeah do do you have do you have any specific examples? Because this is I mean this is super interesting. I will so I will say I think this is definitely true on the hill itself, um, and people AI has a fantastic kind of pile of governance scholars who just talk about how like congress used to move faster and now it like literally can't there's all these institutional factors yada yada ai is a fun example of this as an institution and i want to be clear that i have a lot of love for 
for my old workplace. And I think there's a ton of tremendous work there, but like think tanks in general in, in the eighties, um, Reagan, Reagan admin folks would carry around the heritage like handbook. Like it was a fashion accessory. There was a big pile of, it was like, there were like 800, um, look some like, look this up because it's a really fun, like object. It was like, here's like 800 heritage policies for the Reagan administration. And it was like, here they are. You can hold it. Um, you can consult the index. Um, like think tanks made policy in a way that I think people still think they do now. They still think they have this effect and there just isn't the institutional clout. There are more actors at play. Um, think tanks like AI are old now and have developed like accreted different layers of, you know, the digital team and, uh, you know, the, the video team, there's like a kind of an institutional, it feels like, I don't know, like what's it, what's, what's the equivalent. There's just a lot more layers to do a thing. Yeah. And more of it is for public consumption and less of it is for Hill consumption than you would assume. Um, that being said, like plenty of folks do, you know, go to the Hill to talk to Congressman X about project Y that does happen. Um, but there is much less of a pipeline of thinkers come up with thinky thing. They convince key policymakers policy happens. That's a pretty slow process when it happens. Interesting. Yeah. That it's interesting to frame it like that, as that might be a misconception that, you know, a large part of this is actually in the PR space rather than directly interacting with Congress people. I think maybe particular or or you know major bureaucrats or what have you. I think maybe because I don't think about the congressional process that much, or or the legislative process, or you know the regulatory process, yeah. or what have you. And I think maybe outside of DC, I could imagine it being the case that when a person hears about a think tank, they think about, you know, an institution that like has some policy and then they go and write a paper defending that policy. And, you know, whatever way they think is going to swing public support in favor of that policy, you know, to, to the maximum extent and like, you know, provide a source for say journalists to go and, and cite this thing. And, you know, here we have like, you know, the heritage foundation has published a thing saying this here, I'm going to write a story about it. Now Mm -hmm. everybody gets to know that this thing is true. And we've cited, an expert who says that this thing is true. Yeah. Um, wait, wait, what's the, what's the question? I, mean, there? I guess there's not a question there. Uh, it just, <laughs> just, just like, I, I think it's interesting that, that you cite the, the like direct interfacing between, um, between think tanks and politicians as, as being slower now than it used to be in the past. I, I guess because yeah. that, that I've, I've mostly thought about think tanks as playing a, playing a PR role rather than playing a direct intervening in the legislature role. Although I guess there the, the usual stories like politicians and their, and their staffs don't actually have time to actually think about anything. So they just go and cite yeah. people who they know to be friendly to their positions and like ask them what to think. So that part, yes, yeah, so that part is very true. But your, your point about the PR function, I think it's, I think it's kind of worse than that in that oh. like you're, you're, you're spot on that. Like a lot of think tanks exist to like feed material into this like journalistic content mill um but what you often see and i i I don't name direct actors here but like you'll you'll see a lot of the the bigger institutions like the the ones that aren't like specific policy focused there's not even like an internal sense of 
here's the kind of things we write and here's the places we would have to place them in order to move public opinion on this. Like even that kind of sense of like, well, maybe we can move, you know, over the next few years, we can help move the American public to feel more critical of this. Um, often that kind of infrastructure, they're like, what would it take to sway public opinion? It doesn't exist. It's largely directed by what do you have to do for the donors and what do individual, oh. what, what, what projects do individual scholars have that they think will help them professionally? And these institutions are largely holding pens for people who cannot be in the current administration, but would like to be in the next one. Like yeah. you have to, you have to do, put something on the resume. You have to kind of maintain connections so that when you guys are swept back into power, you can go in as the undersecretary for yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So I, I think there's even less of a, uh, a purposefulness about the PR side than the assumption would be like, aha, they spend millions of dollars every year to trick Americans about X. A, a lot of it is just really unconscious. <laughs> Interesting is okay. What, what questions should I be asking you that I'm not asking you? One, one thing that's become really clear to me over the last you know hour is that you know a lot of things and have a perspective no. that's much deep. Well, okay. Just I, hear I, me out. I, <laughs> sometimes I talk with people and it's like, okay, I'm asking questions and I'm kind of getting at a thing that exists, but my impression of what exists is pretty murky and I'm kind of like hitting the outlines of it, but, but only in this really superficial or, or like tangential way. So like, I don't know if, if you were to just sit here and, and yell at people for an hour and if you want to take an entire hour to do it, you can. But suppose you had, you know, 15 or 20 minutes to just pontificate. What would you do? Oh, goodness. Um, okay, here's here's one mini rant that is a, basically a self-criticism. Um, <laughs> uh, I One of AI scholars who I really adore, you've all have been, wrote uh, A Time to Build, a book right around the same time that Mark Andreessen wrote that big essay, It's Time to Build. Yeah. I, on, I wrote something that was written on both of them. Yada, yada, yada. Everybody wants to build institutions. Um, and everybody points to institutions that exist as examples of failing institutions. Um, you know, DC think tanks, Congress, um, the, the conservative establishment, the liberal establishment, yada, yada. Um, I don't know. <sighs> those institutions are really good at doing the things they're built to do. They, they function. They just don't do the things that you actually want them to be doing. Um, so like the build parallel institutions, thing, I don't even know where I'm going with this, except that like a lot of, a lot of people read DC through the lens of why doesn't this thing serve the American people? And the answer is like, that's not, it, it's working really well at doing institution maximizing goals. It's just that that's not one of the things on the table. Um, yeah, I was talking I, with, yeah, I, I was talking with chaos about this the other night. I, I think that's how we started our podcast is like, man, here are all of these things that, that are working badly in, in the sense that we think about how they, how we'd like them to work, but there are a lot of really clear reasons why they work that way. And it's really hard to get them to stop doing things that you don't want them to do. So like, get, guess yeah. we're hosed. Like, like the whole, the whole argument that is largely happening in like conservative thinky circles about like, Oh, what wither policy and like whence Trumpism and like 
what do you do next? Which direction do you, does the GOP take? Assumes yeah. that there is that there is an actor called the GOP that can choose these things, um, and that individuals aren't just responding to their voters and their donors, and generate like you know I mean which is a really kind of obvious intuition for Grey Tribe folks who are used to thinking about egregores and like institutional incentives. So maybe I'm I'm preaching to the choir here, but there's a whole lot of words expended that are really. Yeah. So the, the the other facet of this, I will say, is that this might be more of more interest to you is um, personal relationships and personal beefs run so much more of the policy debate and like public policy space than is immediately perceptible from the outside. Um, yeah. People people really hate each other. They spend a lifetime in the same social circles and being snippy to each other at parties. Like this part really is true. Um, so many like this institution is opposed to this institution especially in the think tank world are really these two people hate each other they despise each other and they are willing to spend their professional lives and they are funded in order to spend a bunch of their free time like doing what looks like policy work and is really like revenge work that sounds a lot like academia i'm sure it is i think these things are very similar yeah same same talent pool probably same talent, largely like exactly the same talent pool. I think there's probably something about like being PMC who I think it was like Anna Kachian from Red Scare was tweeting about how libs love to start beef in the office because it's the only source of entertainment in their lives. And I think that is that insight, general insight, I think holds true for just basically anybody who's in the like writer class in DC, like myself included. I think there's a strong incentive to start fights because it feels like you're doing something. Yeah. Do, do you want to start any fights today? Or like oh, continue? <laughs> I, I, I formally gave up on fighting anybody on Twitter a few years ago, and I have tried my best to keep to that. I failed. I failed last year in my New Year's policy to not hate read anything. I like bombed out miserably, but I'm still working on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's a that's an ongoing project. I am I am resolutely in a beef ending phase at the moment. I do not. If I have beef with you, like come forward and let us resolve it like men and like talk about it no more. I don't want to have beef anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually hate reading is kind of alien to me. I. I, I mean, like I mentioned that that Will Wilkinson piece, like I just didn't want to read it. You know, I I made an attempt. Somebody asked me what my opinion of it was was like I got halfway through. and It was like this. This is really unpleasant. I'm just going to stop this now. It's like, why, why am I doing this? There's enough. Yeah, especially. Yeah, I think just as I get older, I'm like, there is a whole industry of creating stuff that is like you say, dumb on purpose or bad on purpose to make you click. Um and it doesn't end. You can go down the rabbit hole and be really mad. And there are institutions in your life designed to feed you as much of it as you can take and then some more. And you should try to fight those in your personal life. You should battle them. <laughs> so our, one one thing I am curious about, there, there are stories about, I mean, p- stories, there are claims made like, oh, Pelosi and McConnell you know, they'll, they'll, they'll tear each other down in public, but then, you know, behind closed doors, they're, you know, pouring each other drinks and having a good time with each other. And one thing that I'm curious about when you're talking about these beefs, do they tend to be across party lines or intra-party? That's a good question. I think maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm drawing two fine distinctions here. I'm, I, I don't know anything specifically, but I'm perfectly willing to believe that all these 
political elected actors are really buddies behind closed doors. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the flax and, you know, the public faces, like the, the, the policy folks, both intra-party and across partisan lines. Um, yeah, every I think it's like academia. People develop the same kinds of egos and the same you definitely i will say in my in my like right of center world you see a huge amount of personal tension just on this side of the aisle these days there is a huge amount of the like ah i'm glad we're finally having serious discussions about the family tax credit or whatever that is purely driven by personal animosity wow yeah that's that's amazing i i've been so it's on the front of my mind i've been listening to um history of china podcast which is great Shout out to History of China podcast. And I've been thinking a lot about the intracourt politics that existed in, in all of these, you know, massive imperial bureaucracies and just how much time everybody seemed to spend hating everyone else. I mean, just the concubines themselves, you know, like uh-huh. the, the, these, these women who spent all of their time around eunuchs, the emperor accepted, just scheming constantly to kill each other's children and get themselves into power, get their, <laughs> like get their children into power or, you know, murder their sons who weren't cooperate and just, just madness. And I, I wonder if that just happens whenever you have kind of a courtly environment, which I think academia is. And it seems like, I mean, DC feels like an Imperial capital. I mean, mm-hmm. I think and, that's an accurate description. Yeah. And so I guess like continuing this metaphor to be gratuitous I, I guess you could identify like policy flax and think tanks as, as the, you know, as, as eunuchs in the, the places that house the eunuchs, like my words, not yours. It's fine. I, I, I'm, I'm remaining silent on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no comment, but, but yeah, yeah no, no, go, go on, go on. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, like may, maybe this is just something that's inevitable. And I mean, I don't know, you go back and you know, you see things where, where there's very well doc also in Rome, actually mm-hmm. like so much of that was driven by personal beef. And I, I don't know, I guess I'm starting to think about this too, a little bit from uh, um, as, as my mind wanders, I have not slept enough from the sort of uh, Durantian Durant-esque framing of history as just a, a history of scenes. And, you know, like the way that he writes history is he takes these biographies of people and especially once you once you get into early modernity, and especially you know during during the Enlightenment when epistolary culture was alive and rich, and everybody was writing letters to everybody else, you start to see history as this series of people just interacting with each other and loving each other and hating each other and writing to each other constantly and just beefing nonstop. And you know these people happen to have power in some way or another. And and that just tends to drive everything. And it's interesting thinking about DC in that kind of a light. Yeah. And it's interesting that your your examples of like, you know, like enlightenment figures or China or Rome, like uh, this stuff also all happens at the peak of imperial power. Like it's not like, you know, oh no, America's in decline. Now personal beefs run everything. Like personal beefs have always run everything. And like, they're not actually the inhibitor to things working right. Yeah, I, I was. I was. Just, I just finished Founding Fathers. Joseph Ellis, really good. Mm, yeah, really enjoyable. Um, that was and, that was the other example that I had actually. Like, yeah, yeah, late 18th century America. Holy shit! These people all hate each other for really personal reasons. You know, just because like he 
that grinds my gears, you know, like Adams is insufferable as a person. And like, now I'm going to dedicate like large portions of my life to slandering him, you know, yeah. in, in, in the paper. Like, but, but like that, that stuff is, is not a, like a pox on an otherwise healthy political culture. That stuff is what a political culture is. Yeah. And I, th- I think you have to look beyond like, People despising each other and using their platforms to go on personal vendettas is not the cause of like DC not working. When DC worked, people despised each other. There are like yeah. more systemic factors that you like, which I think, you know, like that, that being said, I do think I am increasingly convinced by like watching people I respect in DC that if you can manage to be kind and polite and deal graciously with people you do not enjoy spending time with it is really valuable i think from a from a building institutions level from on a personal level i'm increasingly convinced that people who succeed have this power that i don't to like look at someone who they really find annoying and spend you know several weeks at a time with them I'm working. I'm working on that superpower. I do not. have. (laughs) I've given you the opportunity at least twice and possibly three times to throw punches again, gratuitously in the last hour. So I think you're doing all right. I'm, I am slowly, slowly, slowly working on this, but like, seriously, like the Santi, the Santi of two years ago would have, would have, (laughs) would have tried to land some punches and made enemies forever. And, you know, 40 years from now, it would be my downfall at a Senate confirmation hearing or something. So there you go. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it gets exhausting. And I, I, I mean, I, I personally, I, I struggle with this a lot. I mean, the great, great tribe is like this too, for sure. And oh, yeah. I, I mean, the, the number of beefs that exist is, is vast. I'm not even sure what most of them are. I try not to pay too much attention to who hates whom, but I mean, you know, the, they're just people I don't talk to anymore, which is a bit sad, but also I, it actually does feel like it inhibits things a bit. It, it's inevitable, but there are people that I would like to talk to who I think won't talk to me. I, and the, the, there have been a lot of cases of burying the hatchet that have been very productive. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Jacob Falkovich and I have, have had a number of snippy interactions on Twitter, but I mean, he came on here and he was really gracious and I, I really enjoyed talking with him. And I think we came away better for that. I think so, you're. A, I think you're. A, you're a good public-facing example of um, why graciousness is not just a good uh, interpersonal habit or virtue, but it is also good for social lubrication and for a bunch of kind of external factors as well. Yeah, I, I, I think. I think. I think it pays not only in that it is the right thing to do, and will you should be good to the people around you, but also in a like you can help a social scene get going in ways you otherwise couldn't if you were a snippy bastard. Yeah. Well, I, you're, I think you're being too kind to me. I, I have my moments and I guess by, by talking about the goals that you have for yourself, I think I'm starting to reflect on, <laughs> on cases where it's, it really we're, has been pretty we, gratuitous, but we're, we're aspirationally gracious. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey. We're becoming good. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, one, man. One quashed beef at a time. Yeah. Well, Hey, um, so we're over an hour now, which is like my my baseline for running these. But also, I I think the when I had Shay on here, he went for an hour and forty minutes on objectivism and and quality research. Um, is is there anything you want to cover? I I definitely don't have anything else to do with my day. How about how about in group people marrying each other? Is that too personal? No, but because I, you're gonna have to help me. You're gonna have to help prompt me with people 
because my I have the memory of like I, I have a very poor memory. So like I'm not going to come up with names off the top of my head, but I'm I'm pulling up Twitter now. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it, it's a little bit dangerous actually because some of the people that I was inclined to mention I think are not married at this point in time. Okay, but I I know that Moon and I spend a little less lately because she's sleeping a lot. You know, she's very pregnant, but have spent a lot of time thinking about who we can get to hook up on Twitter. And I know I there think ex- that's admirable. There exists at least one group chat that is devoted to trying to match people up. You, you mentioned this on a pod. That's excellent. Um, I will, I will say if that's, is that a gal's, group chat or a married's group chat or, or together's group chat my understanding is that it's a group chat of people who are couples and i i i, I wouldn't know because i never read dms but this is what's <laughs> conveyed to me by moon and i i guess the thing that they've been doing recently is just um if if being sort of passive aggressive on the timeline doesn't work they'll just add the two people into the group chat at the same time as a yes. strong signal yes. that they should match up so i I'm kind of curious, how do marriages work in DC? Oh, as long as we're talking about scenes and as long as we're talking about like the role that like marriage or, or or, like coupling up can, can function in a society. Oh man. See, I I do not feel qualified to talk about DC marriages. I do have a good bit of insight into like conservative christian recently out of college dc marriages which are a whole which are a large sub portion of the marriages happening in dc wait most is, likely. There, is there a difference across i guess it makes sense that there would be a difference across party lines i mean are republicans shacking up and, and democrats are like turning into spencers both sexes i i well i i couldn't tell you anything about the the rate of uh, relationship havers but I can tell you the rate of marriage havers, at least from my perspective, certainly seems to be, and maybe this is just my, my age set. You know, I've recently graduated college and the only folks I know who are getting married in that cohort are, you know, folks somewhere on the right. The only people yeah. who kind of have it as a, either an explicit goal in college or as an explicit possibility outside of college are, are more my world people. Um, but I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know any, personal cases in which the marriage is functioning explicitly or implicitly as like a uh getting ahead for success i don't even know if it works like that anymore in dc i wonder if it does i wonder if you can still like marry well into like political capital in the way that like you obviously could if you were lbj or someone yeah well i know that there were like um i mean there's that that i i think really sad case of there's someone who's a i mean like okay James Carville, oh, yeah, and 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 I think he was a Democrat, and then was he maybe married to a Republican operative? He was uh, Mary Madeline. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but yeah, yeah, and and they seem like they were very sweet. I haven't checked up on that in in like thirty years, but they're they're, they're still together for sure. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I see no yeah. reason why why that shouldn't thrive. <laughs> I I like Carville actually. He, I mean, he he's got a certain vibe about him, and he he is what he is, and he really embodies it and is honest about it and very upfront there's a role Um, for people like him yeah 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 he he feels a very needed niche yeah so so okay so like that that feels like a success story but then there was uh was it a trump spokesperson trump spokeswoman oh no was this the jason miller one maybe two 
was it the two folks on the Trump like comms campaign worlds? There was no. some very sort sorted and sad story there. That I, don't uh, remember the details I was of. thinking about the one where where their daughter was kind of being egged on. Oh, is it the Conways? Yeah, that's a real, yeah the Conways. That's a, re- that's a real like American tragedy. Yeah, I, I don't even I don't even want to get it. Nicole has followed this very closely, um, but no, it just there's a lot of broken people in DC, and when you put them in the spotlight like that, like obviously nothing good is going to happen. I I wish them all the best. I don't know. Yeah, no, me too. I I don't know. I I saw that happening, and it was it was actually pretty distressing. The, oh, totally. the way that people were reacting to it. And it's like, these people are married. They're a family. Like they're not, mm-hmm. they're not your plaything. I, is that, do you think that that was just the result of them being in the spotlight? I don't want to speculate there. I'm sure there's all kinds of yeah. family, you know, stuff. The one, the one place I will go in on a specific couple is to say that Callista Gingrich is a fantastic Instagram follow. Um, Really? She was she was until recently the ambassador to the Vatican. I mean, until until you know whenever this last term ended. Callista um, Gingrich. Yes, Gingrich, wife number four. And yeah. How does the tr- okay? I know. I know. Yeah. I'm I, I'm not Catholic, so I couldn't tell you. But it was an interesting. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, but if you want like a little like window of insight into a very particular kind of DC life that seemed really fun in the Vatican. There was lots of, you know, really beautiful gardens, but I would just highly recommend that if you're like, if you want to follow B list and C list DC personalities, maybe I do. I, a secret ambition that I'm never going to carry out is I think I would have a lot of fun as an ambassador. It's not, it sounds like a dream job. The one thing I have, I have found out recently is that it costs a ton of money. Yep. Yeah. I did not, I did not know until recently, but like, the self-fulfilling cycle of, well, we can only nominate big donors to these positions because you have to throw a party every, every week. Yep. And that's not in the state department budget. So someone's got to pay for the the splashy American presence here. Oh, interesting. I did not realize that was part of oh, it. Yeah. I, I knew it was all donors, but I didn't mm-hmm. realize that it was all on their dime. I don't know. It might be a chicken and egg situation, but these days I know one of the reasons like you have to pick a certain number of donors is no one's going to fight to put the line item in the state department budget that says parties for Tajikistani, you know, high ups. Like you, you, you can be brazen in DC, but you can't be that brazen. So obviously like you have to maintain some sort of like, we're the place to go where the fun people come hang out, talk to the Americans, but you can't convince taxpayers that they should spend many millions of dollars a year on that. <laughs> Wait, that that's actually absurd to me. That actually seems like a wonderful use of public funds. It absolutely does. And it might be that like, as a function of so many wealthy people being in these roles, that that budget got cut back over the years. Who knows? I don't know how the, how the, the chron- chronology played out, but at this point, like you want to be ambassador to, you know, little podunk country in, you know, Eastern Europe, you better have cash. <laughs> Is that is that true of the the major embassies? I mean, I have to assume that like if you're the ambassador to say, I don't know Germany. Well, I mean, right. maybe the Germans don't really care about the parties that much <laughs> anyway. But you know, I, I could imagine that they would want somebody who is maybe more professional or more. Right. Um, like I can't remember up. what the what the what the general distribution tends to be. If it's something like a third pro- professionals or two thirds professionals, one third big donors, there's generally like some some 
rough equation that they get divvied out with obviously the important ones getting given to people who know what they're doing or people who have at least been in public life a while and can like handle the pressures even if they don't know anything about you know the uk yeah Um, but definitely if you're below a certain tier of importance geopolitical importance to this country you can grab some wealthy donor and say thank you for your service you're going to poland (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) oh i would love that it sounds like a dream yeah Okay, well, that maybe that's a good long-term goal for me. I mean, I, I don't know that I want to be in tech forever, and maybe I, I think you can probably really maximize both enjoyment of the job and probably like quiet efficacy of doing some like good things that go unheralded and are and are good for people in the ambassador role. It sounds like a perfect opportunity to like tell yourself you're doing good by throwing excellent parties. I already tell myself that. So yeah. <laughs> but but with less money than <laughs> yeah <laughs> and fewer maybe maybe fewer interesting foreigners hmm. i think most of my parties would benefit from some more some more of those okay i i know an odd number of interesting foreigners so maybe <laughs> once covid's over let's talk we can we can set something up sounds good the other the other thing just to go back was um dating on the tl yeah um I don't know that I have special insight. I lucked into being engaged in a call. I cannot kind of extrapolate from that, but I will say I have a large pack of very marriageable young men who are funny on the TL. And if you are looking for one, please let me know. Ladies, Um, ladies, listeners, um, gays there we have we have a lot of options available i i (laughs) I may i may not have advice but i can connect you with good looking muscular well-read funny individuals that that will be my shill for tonight (laughs) come to me with your marriage needs oh that's beautiful actually yeah we need to okay my ask of everyone who's listening who is interested in dating men Please spread the word about this podcast, not because I care about how many people listen per se, but because we need to set up all of the men who listen to this podcast. There, there, there is an opportunity here. There's all these, you know, I, plenty of folks have spoken. I mean, you, you had default on a few episodes ago, oh, just yeah. much more, much more, much more eloquently than I could about the like sexual social dynamics of our corner. I. We can we can try to solve those one well paired couple at a time. I can't do anything about the you know the bumbleification of of the web, but I can find one guy and one gal and make them kiss. <laughs> we should we should we. I wonder if we could set up some kind of a like debutante ball where where all the single people just come out and I don't know. We we could we could have a party somewhere. I need to did think you- about that too. Did you know anybody who ever had like a formal debutante ball like the the high society coming out. Are you kidding? I grew up in Minneapolis. I don't know. I don't know about Minneapolis high society. Yeah, I, there's, I, there is no high society in Minneapolis. It's mid- Midwest. I, I think high society only really exists in a serious way, probably on the East Coast, maybe in the South. I, I The only person I ever met who had like fully partaken in that world was from like Upper West Side, New York. Yep. At, at, at In college. And it really was a different world. It was like, there was no sense of irony about it at all. It was like a high point of this person's, you know, childhood and teen experiences completely, yeah, no. you know, completely genuinely. 
I think the we should long, bring the long white gloves, you know? Yeah. I think we should bring that back. I mean, prom is okay. And there is a certain charm about, you know, growing up a scrub and, and, and like feeling good about making your own way in the world. But I think that kind of coming of age ritual is good actually. And, and maybe it's, maybe it's empowering for kids. I don't know. I need to think about that a bit. I guess I'm I'm coming to it now. It's it's funny you bring it up. I guess I'm now I'm thinking about it in the context of like planning a wedding, where like obviously it's not a like you were affirmed as an adult kind of event, but it's still a like this oh it is totally public, is though. But, but it it kind of is. I guess it kind of is, and it's like this public public like we all see you as a member of our community, like welcome person. It's got it, largely the same functions of like making you feel like it's okay to like enter society yeah um yeah i don't know it, it super is though i i guess i guess you've never been married before as no, far as no. i know um first, it, first time. It, it absolutely is that it's i think in some ways more of a coming of age ritual than say going off to college i think hmm. i i think you should have some thoughts on this because you've done it twice (laughs) yeah yeah um no i i think getting married and i expect having kids as well which is the the point of view that i'm looking at when i'm thinking about debutante balls i mean like right i have a daughter on the way she's gonna arrive anytime i have spent i've spent a lot of time thinking about all right suppose my daughter wants to be a princess what can I do to make that happen in the mm. most satisfying way I possibly can? It's nuts. Mm. It's if if you ever have a daughter, I expect this will happen to you too. Are you feeling like hormonal shifts as the process wears on? I'm sure you are. Oh, absolutely. Like. Yeah, it's <laughs> yes. Um, major major hormonal shifts. I think I've become just hormonally much more stereotypically masculine. Like whenever it seems like there's been anything that even conceivably would, would be a threat to, to moon or, or to our daughter, it's like red haze. <laughs> I, I'm going to destroy this thing. And also, but, but also, I mean, just like thinking about having a daughter completely like that. It's like, this girl is going to absolutely owe me. It's I, I, I mean, like she's not born and I'm thinking about what kind of tiara she might like to wear at some point, you know, I just, it, it's absurd. And these thoughts come to me unbidden and, and it's, I mean, it's a very powerful urge in the same way that, you know, maybe like wanting to bite into a slice of pizza is, or, right. you know, right. like it, it's, it's deep and biological. Um, Hormonal shifts as a key part of becoming good. Yeah. 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 No, it's great. <laughs> and it, I mean, it does, it does sort of feel like growing up. Um, but I, I would say, I mean, at least in my family, there there is an element where all of us are kids. I'm the I'm the oldest in my cousin group, apart from my brother, but he's much older. And I, I think the point at which it started to feel like I was going to be somebody who could sit at the big kids table or you know the grown up table was was when I got married, and that was a much starker divide than when I went off to college. Interesting. When, when it was like, well, okay, so you're in college now. Yeah, you're still a kid, but I mean, you mm-hmm. get married that feels like a major commitment that you're making about your life. And the sort of thing that is really life changing in a certain way. And like a, a point where you're deciding what the course of your life is going to be going forward. And I, I don't know how universal this is, but in my experience, that was, I think much more of a defining point of adulthood than, than going to college or graduating or even getting a job. 
Yeah, it seems like, I mean, coming at this from a much younger perspective, it seems like one one signifier that you are an adult is making irrevocable choices. Yes, like, <laughs> you you have chosen something. It, it, you know the you know the, your your options are now limited by this much, and that seems at least from the outside as a pre-married individual to be one of the key signifiers and like you're a grown up because you make choices you can't take back. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I mean, no pressure. I mean, you're, you're about to get married <laughs> in like a hundred days and I feel like I'm putting a lot yeah. of pressure on you and I don't intend to do that, but also, no, I, I mean, yeah, I, that's I've how it is. About this a bunch. Yeah. I thought about this a bunch and I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a great blessing that Nicole thinks about it that way too. And that we've spent a lot of time talking about like, what does it mean that like you're making a choice that like we're, we're saying you can never take back you don't make a lot of those, you know, I, I haven't up till now. So like time to start thinking about like, what kind of person are you that makes this kind of choice? I don't know. It's a very, so it is sobering, you know, in a very yeah. cool and exciting way, but definitely not. It's not, I am, I'm not taking it lightly. Yeah. Which I think is good. I, I think going into it with that kind of a mindset just leads to you making better choices than, then if you take it lightly and it's like, well, we've been dating for a while, so I guess we should get married because that's sort of what people do. I mean, it that, yeah, I, I guess just, I, it felt like I was, you know, standing before like man and God and, and explicitly making this decision in such a way that it was just like shaping what the rest of my life was going to be as, as we've been yeah. saying for the last five minutes. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like sometimes I say things a lot and repeat them when, when I want to emphasize that they seem true, even though I'm not actually adding any additional information, but we, it, it, we in an oral culture, repetition actually does change the meaning. Right. So yeah, I think, I, th- I think you're, I think you're on the right track. There. Cool. So, um, all right. Hey, uh, everybody consider getting married, like, but take it seriously, but also it's great. <laughs> um, Santi, thanks for coming on, man. It's, it's been a pleasure talking with you. It was, it was a delight. Again. Um, and shout out to one, one quick shill, last shill for the listeners. Oh, if yeah, please. Got, yeah. If you've got um, an interesting story in your work field or among your friend groups, and you would like it to be treated with the respect and carefulness it deserves, consider hitting me up. And I promise not to try and destroy you if you are like six degrees of Kevin Bacon adjacent to someone who is wrong thinking. <laughs> I, I, I. I I will say that I know Santi and you can take that seriously. Please be careful, but also like do be careful. You one one thing one thing that may make actually I will say the last thing, one thing that may make this easier. Um before you say anything, ask me to confirm that it's off the record. That is like the one iron rule if if a journalist confirms if you both agree that it's off the record, it's off the record. It is not off the record if you just say this is off the record, but X. You need this is probably life lesson. The journalist has to confirm. You have to both agree. So make sure something's off the record and then we can, I'll agree. And then we can chat about whatever juicy gossip you have. Do you, would you feel good talking through people about like different risk factors or, or different like failure modes of, of someone talking to you? I think that's pretty important. Like say say more. Oh, so like, so say, okay, well we can talk. And if you talk to me in this way, here is like, here are some of the risks that that would be involved in that or like here are some of the ways that it could go badly is is that i mean maybe that's not something you can actually even think through oh but de- definitely definitely i'll give i'll give one example and i think obviously it's case by case but like this morning i broke a story about um 
how a bunch of Orthodox Jews are really upset that Amazon is changing certain internal regulations that will basically force them out of the the like seller fulfilled prime marketplace. Huh. Um, I t- I, it's pretty arcane, but they basically won't be able to pull the Sabbath and fulfill Amazon's new requirements. And I talked to one uh, Orthodox Jewish jewelry seller um, who asked only to be identified by his first name. And before press time, an Amazon PR guy called and tried very hard to get his full name. Um, ju- you know, quote, just to run, you know, just try and figure out, you know, if we're doing right by him, yada, yada, yada. Um, so like there, there are people out there who would like to, you know, de-anonymize you and potentially cause you harm if you talk to a reporter like that, that is true. You know, that's the case of like this guy very justifiably only wanted to be identified by first name because he could be in professional trouble. Um, and like, obviously I didn't, I didn't spill the beans. Um, but like there are, it, it is something you should think about when going to journalists. And I don't mean to warn you off of talking to me, but like. But there are bad actors, and there are actors who don't think they're bad, but will cause you great harm. <laughs> um, so there's definitely levels of like anonymity and what kind of information will be identifying about the things you tell me, et cetera, that all can be talked through off the record, I think, and are very healthy to talk about. I think a good, I, I'm again, I'm just getting into this, but I think the best journalists build really kind of good connections with people before they try to push them to put themselves at risk. Yeah. There's some kind of a professional metaphor that I want to make, but it's not coming to me and I'm pretty tired. So (laughs) anyway, yeah. Talk to Santi. If it's something that you can do safely, think really carefully about that, but also Santi's a good guy. So thanks. Yeah. Um, Hey, thanks once again for coming on talking through for not throwing punches. Um, I, I feel inspired. (laughs) that <laughs> and, all right sorry audience <laughs> yeah no yeah to, to, to their detriment but i think maybe that maybe in the grand scheme of things it's good for everyone to see that kind of example and uh yeah i guess we can call it here and also send me a registry oh we'll do we'll do <laughs> all right take care man take care bye